one thing you learn after working kind of indirectly in the oil markets for many years is that nobody really has the answer. I, I, I mentioned that uh, tankers are vividly volatile because uh, you know the market is not efficient. The same goes for oil as well. And one interesting fact that that very few people know is that you know when you look at say the forward curve on Brent, you think that okay, so 2024 Brent is priced at X. Ooh, you know there is probably a lot of analysis behind that number. They really, really know what they're talking about. Well, it's a little bit like the tanker industry. It's like a mean reversion thing, and it's where. Uh, the marginal production, uh, you know, what the marginal production needs in order to make money. And also people think, ooh, you know, there's probably billions of dollars being put on 2024 Brent. Well, it isn't. You know, kind of a, a, a feisty hedge fund with an attitude can manipulate that curve very easily. Lars Barsta has served as CEO of Frontline since September 2021. He has held senior positions in finance and shipping in Norway, UK and Singapore and has a strong knowledge base to understand the global and complex tank and oil market. In this episode, Lars shares his thoughts on finance, the global economy, oil markets, frontline and much more. Let's hear from our sponsors. Quarter is the new way of doing company research. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket. Quarter's mission is to change the way people look at investor relations and create a completely new bridge between companies and stakeholders. Quarter is 100% free. They include companies from 15 markets today and plan to add more over time. They always prioritize requested companies, which users can easily do in the app. Users can also leave reactions while listening to the conference calls to make their voice heard. So check out Quarter. Q-U-A-R-T-R. All opinions expressed by Christopher Vonheim or his guests on this podcast are only their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of BIN. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Christopher Volname as a specific reason to invest or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. This episode is produced by William Fransen. Let the episode begin. Welcome back, everyone. I'm very excited to be joined by Lars. And Lars, thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. You've been on the on the waitlist for quite some time, and obviously, we are very interested about your journey and also the um, the story of Frontline, of course. But before we head into shipping, can you go down the memory lane a bit? Because I guess it's fair to say that you started in finance and maybe stock picking and found that fascinating. That was maybe your start in finance, finance at least. Yeah, I'm. I'm. Um, you know. I actually have a background then from from the equity markets. Um, I, I graduated with a, with a, um, a bachelor in science um, from from a university here in Oslo, and then kind of I was more inspired by uh, the movie uh, Wall Street and uh, kind of uh, hitting the financial markets. Then then you know not I wasn't really considering shipping too much. And to to be fair, at that time. 
as many times after, uh, shipping has kind of been doomed a bit. You know, it's been looked at uh, as a marginal industry that's just going to be effectivized and and uh, kind of commoditized and and uh, you know uh, kind of be like boring. But um, so I started off in the equity markets uh, first as an analyst and then managing uh, a small fund uh, here in Oslo. Um, so so that was basically kind of where it started. Um, I, I had a few friends that were working in the shipping industry, and I remember it was, it was quite funny because during those years, I believe it was Reuters where it was trying to set up a screen for uh, kind of uh, ship fixing. So basically, where you know to try and avoid the physical broker in between the cargo owner and the and the and the ship owner. Um, so, so actually, as early as that, so early nineties, uh, somebody tried to structure this uh, business. Can you just describe the equity markets today versus the time you started? Because I don't want to bring up your age, right? But there is a gap between nineties and today, right? So, what has changed? Is it much more information? Things go. Is it the standard things, or are there something that is really different that you would have? Been, you had to be there to understand the difference in the equity markets today compared to your time. Well, I believe kind of, um, and I was I'm not that old, so I don't know how the 80s were, um, but uh, or at least I wasn't in the equity markets at that time. But I believe kind of every big cycle in in the stock markets has its uh, kind of theme, and. Um, so the 80s was uh, kind of roaring, uh, you know, with the leverage and uh, M&A and uh, it was also where kind of high yield bonds uh, kind of came up into play and all that stuff. Um, but the 90s was uh, was more kind of dominated by the, 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 the rapid change in technology. So uh, this was kind of the, the, the where Cisco and Microsoft and, um, you know, all these companies started to, to, to uh, you know, evolve. Um, and uh, so that was a really interesting kind of uh, time. I think here in Norway, it was typically uh, where you started to see funds uh, invest uh, more and more abroad. So, you know, after being constricted to the Oslo Stock Exchange, uh, they started to look uh, kind of um, uh, across the borders and uh, particularly towards the US. So, so it, it, it changed kind of the dynamics in the, in the investment uh, kind of environment. Um, for Norwegians as well, um, but <clears throat> I think uh, you know one of the things, and and uh, that that was this was you know an, an important kind of thing for me uh, is that you know whilst the eighties were dominated by fundamental bottom up analysis, um, and um, as I mentioned, uh, you know you had a lot of M and A activity, uh, and uh, during kind of those years. And a lot of leverage debt and so forth in in the nineties, um, and this was what caught my attention a lot. Uh, you suddenly started to to see kind of other uh, ways of of investing. Uh, one of them being uh, kind of the, the usage of technical analysis, which was uh, what caught my eye, and and also the the fund I was working for and the investment bank I was working for at the time had a high focus on. Uh, technical analysis, using it basically to to try and uh, you know, it's it's a very efficient way of an, analyzing uh, a broad area of equities, sectors, markets, and uh, and, and th this was you know I found really really interesting. 
How do we separate fundamental research from technical research? Because if you go deep enough or broad enough, maybe it's just the same, right? So how do you separate those two concepts? Well, kind of the, if you are a shortist, to use a fancy word, um, you accept or you, you acknowledge the fact that if you look at price, action, and volume, you actually see the sum of what all the fundamental investors are doing, you know, all the bottom-up analysts are kind of where they're putting their money. And, and if you say you, you put your money where your mouth is, you're actually seeing the sum of a lot of people's opinion about that stock or that market or that sector. So it's, uh, it's, it's kind of cheating, uh, you could say. You know, you, you basically try to, to, to quickly um, get, a, get a grip on what a lot of people are, are thinking about certain equity. But in order for it to work, it has to be a very liquid stock. It has to be a lot of investors. And you know, the, the, the kind of the fundamental thing about technical analysis is that you also assume the market is efficient, that information is evenly spread. So you know, if it's a marginal stock on an you know, OTC list in a weird exchange where there are you know, 500 shareholders, there is no way you can apply technical analysis. But for the broader markets, for the big, large cap companies and so forth, um, I, I'd like to argue that, that uh, you know, the price action you see on your screen is a, uh, the sum of people's kind of actions and, and the sum of uh, a lot of people's analysis uh, of that company or that sector. Is it fair to say that the downside or maybe a weak point in going about that way when investing is that if you take, you know, it's so much psychology in the market, right? So maybe if you find the right strategy on technical chart, maybe the psychology or the management, maybe you're missing some pieces that can either ruin your conviction or ruin the, the, the picture you have made in your Excel sheets, or is that... A bad assumption to say. No, no, it, it is, and um, and I I think people listening in has to understand that, you know, where where this kind of movement erupted in the in analyzing the equity markets and, and commodity markets too, this was during the nineties. And during the nineties, one thing you really didn't have was these massive long short hedge funds. You didn't have quantitative models. You didn't have kind of black box trading. You didn't have high frequency trading. And um, so, so there was far less noise in the market. And, and this is why kind of your point is, is, is spot on. Um, there can be so many false uh, kind of signals being com coming into to the shortest's world, basically due to all these machines uh, and also a much larger community of looking at the same patterns. So, you know, we, we kind of, if you're an old school shortist, you're looking for head and shoulders and cup and handle and all these kind of formations. The thing is, right now you have massive computers looking for the same, and they, that will trigger kind of uh, action in the market. So, so uh, yes, it's a very noisy uh, picture. But if you look kind of from, um, you know, if you put the big goggles on and you're drilling kind of top down, um, I think it's still very useful. Makes sense. So I'm asking this question because maybe it is a bridge into shipping, but do you prefer working in Singapore or London because you've done both? And maybe that has something to do with the shipping industry as well. Well, 
<clears throat> I think, well, when I was living in Singapore, it was, it was a fantastic time kind of in my life because I was getting kids and uh, bringing up kids in Singapore is extremely easy. And the, you know, you put on shorts and sandals and that's it basically. Um, but the shipping community in Singapore was really close knit. Um, and it was also kind of very open-minded, meaning that, you know, you'd go to one bar in Bolt Key in, in Singapore called BQ, and there you'd meet all the big owners and all the big charters in one place. So, so, so people got to know each other and it was kind of a very constructive and positive kind of shipping environment. Um, even though uh, people were competitors working for different firms and so forth, um, you know, it, 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 you know it, we were all expats basically. So you were all kind of in that same boat to put it that way. London, it's, uh, you know, that's a massive kind of powerhouse for shipping. So, so um, and also it's, it's far more fragmented um so but but i think singapore is over time that there's a saying that if you stay in singapore beyond five years you're going to stay there for 10 and if you stay beyond 10 you're basically done for and it's uh, some refer to it as a golden handcuffs because it's basically it's so convenient to live there um and very easy living uh but it's also a bit uh, groundhog day for those of you who've seen the movie uh, you know you wake up Every day, it's the same weather, it's the same, you know, it's a small rainstorm, it's the same temperature, you go to the same places, you do the same thing. So it, it does get a bit boring, uh, kind of, at least from a family life perspective, in, in my opinion. So that's uh, kind of where London was far more real life and uh, far more kind of comparable to, to what a normal Norwegian would, would look for. Is it also fair to say that, I don't know today about London, but if we go back a bit, I mean, it's a powerhouse in finance, right, in Europe. So just being in London and understanding how London ticks and moves makes you more capable as a shipping owner or, or as an asset manager or something like that. Absolutely. But, but I, I think also that has changed a little bit. So I moved to London in 2007. Um, and, uh, and I think London now is actually less uh, or has been outcompeted a bit by Geneva. In that respect so you know due to kind of certain tax changes and so forth and this is way ahead of brexit uh, a few of the bigger trading houses and a few of the kind of the bigger charters in the shipping market moved out to geneva and this has then made kind of geneva uh, all you know uh, kind of geneva and london together is is now kind of sharing the throne of of being kind of the shipping places to be so, so, um, but in, in London, you know, you also got the aspects of, of uh, get a feel for the financial markets. And I mentioned I moved there in 2007 and it was, it was quite scary, you know, living there in 2008 um, and into 2009, you know, the, the shipping market wasn't really hit by the financial crisis until about a year after uh, Lehman Brothers went, uh, went belly up. But you could really feel it. I lived that in Wimbledon uh, and, uh, you know, in England, it was very common to have houses to let. So you had like a second home that you just rented out because you had free finance from the banks during the you know the early two thousands. And you could uh, during those days you could walk down the streets and every house was for sale, literally, uh, basically uh, kind of Britons being in a in a financial squeeze. And it was also noticeable that so many people were let go in city that my commute got less crowded. And, and that's uh, kind of when you feel that there is a financial crisis going on. And then obviously it feels 
uh, strange, um, at least during 2008, being in a in a relatively tight uh, tank market, uh, making a lot of money whilst uh, the rest of the world is falling apart. Definitely. So you mentioned the tanker market, and obviously we're going to discuss that a lot in this episode. So what's the best analogy or summary even of, the, of how it is to navigate in the tanker market? Because it's massive if you look at it as data points that matters, right? So how do you summarize working in a tanker industry? Well, well, first of all, uh, people have to, to, to remember that... Um, Tanker markets are mean reverting. You know, it's uh, it's an extremely cyclical industry, and and it it uh, it will eventually move back to a mean, which is somewhere around where you actually get a return on a an investment of a ship, a twenty year investment on a ship, um, and uh, and uh, you know the, the tanker markets will be extremely volatile because you'll have over investment in ships. Uh, or in tonnage and then under investment in tonnage and then you will have the demand moving kind of really crazy from time to time um, but also i think the lack of i mentioned on technical analysis i mentioned efficient markets information being evenly shared in the market you absolutely don't have that in the tanker industry at all um, and and uh, that kind of brings me further to the fact that you actually don't have that in oil markets either when people talk about efficient markets, one tends to look at the, the currency markets. So currencies are, you know, there's so much information kind of roaming around the currency markets. It's extremely liquid. And, and uh, you can basically place any size of bet at any point of time. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so, so that's regarded maybe one of the most efficient markets in the world. Uh, tanker is the total opposite. Um, so, so there's a vast array of information that needs to be kind of analyzed and chewed on. And I, I think just the sheer volatility of the tanker market tells you that nobody really knows what's going to come next. Can we explain why that is a fact? For people may think that why can't we solve this puzzle to understand the equation more fully than obviously it's the case today, right? Well, we have actually started to solve it to some extent, and, and this uh, by the introduction of, you know, just to just to to explain to listeners who's not familiar with shipping. So, every ship in the world has a beacon. You know, it's basically a radio signal that's pulsating and being sent out uh, every minute, every hour of the day, and uh, it's an anti-collision system. It's called an AIS transponder, and every ship over a certain uh, kind of tonnage needs to have it. Uh, you'll even find kind of pressure crafts in the Oslo Fjord, uh, you know, having an AIS transponder, really low tech kind of radio signal thingy. So at some point during uh, mid 2000s, um, low orbiting satellites were able to pick up that signal. Prior to that, you actually, it was only port states and other vessels that picked up this signal. But the minute low orbiting satellites could actually catch that signal, that radio signal, and decipher it, uh, it was like the oceans of the world were lit up with these uh, kind of uh, red dots and green dots and black dots that you now can Google and you'll find them on the internet. And But prior to that happening, nobody really knew where your ship was and nobody really knew what, um, 
current viewership was doing and when it was expected into the Middle East, for instance, or when it was ex expected into the US Gulf. And at that time, the owner had kind of half the puzzle and the charter had the other half of the puzzle. And it was like a kind of, it was, uh, and, and the, you know, obviously the owner could spoof the charter, the charter could spoof the owner. And that, but it was like kind of an evenly, uh, even strength kind of relationship. Once kind of AIS became broadly um, uh, kind of accessible, and uh, we did it when I was working with, uh, with Glencore, we utilized that data uh, quite vividly in the beginning. Uh, actually to the point where we signed an agreement with a Canadian satellite provider just to buy the raw data to try and get ahead of the curve on, on analyzing this data. And suddenly you had an overview of every ship's position in the world. And this has obviously driven the market to become more efficient. The, the challenge for the ship owners is that it hasn't really helped us. You know, it's basically it's given away our information, uh, but we still don't know. Uh, how many cargoes there are uh, you know the demand side have been able to kind of hide their cards better uh, but on the other side of it the analyzing the the, the markets looking at uh, supply and demand in the world refinery margins and so forth has also become more accessible so it means that the owner if he utilizes it can also get a, a, a kind of a, a better feel you know, back, back in the 90s, uh, most of these markets were trading OTCs or over-the-counter. So there wasn't like a Reuters platform you could go to to figure out what uh, the jet crack was out in Asia. Now all this is on Bloomberg or on Reuters. So it means that if an owner does his homework or an analyst does his homework, we've kind of managed to even out the odds to some extent, right? We know what economists kind of work. So, so, so I would say that the market is getting kind of gradually more efficient um but but we're yet not there that's fascinating so if we play out a scenario where you have full transparency through the whole supply chain who has the most to fear or say in another way like who is hiding the cards and thereby can make more money relative to others right maybe it's a hard yeah. question to answer but yeah but, but I, I still think it will be uh kind of uh, at least for now it's the the cargo owners you know, it's a uh, it's the refineries. They know what their schedule is going to be like. Um, <clears throat> you know, they they know kind of what their runs are going to be. Uh, the refineries speak to the oil traders or the oil majors, uh, or they are an oil major. Um, so 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 they and they schedule kind of months ahead. You know, kind of a refiner today will plan for probably start to plan for winter demand uh, 2022. So 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 they will kind of know. Uh, but kind of where the owners kind of might be able to fight back is on pure S&D in the tax market. You know, if there is a limited amount of taxes in the world, you know, uh, kind of knowing the taxes and working together with the taxes will actually start to mean something. We're not yet there, but, but, uh, but that was actually the case, you know, during kind of the, the most extreme bull runs in tankers. It was actually... For a charter, it was really important to be good friends with an owner and to have a long-lasting relationship with an owner, because otherwise the owner just wouldn't offer. And I, I think it's well, it's, it's like a wet dream of any owner. But but you know, you now have almost a whole generation in the chartering part of it. You know, the, the guys booking ships, 
that never really been to you know working in a tight market. They don't know about kind of how important these relationships can be. So, so hopefully they're going to have a kind of a crude awakening once um, <laughs> once this market tightens up. The next piece I would love to add on because I had one theme left, which is the frontline story, right? Because we have many listeners abroad who maybe don't understand the significance of, of course, of course, this is a story of Jon Fredriksen, but it's also a story about how Frontline has catapulted a great, you know, um, umbrella to all these industries or companies under, right? But if before we answer that question, maybe just do you want to say something about consolidation? Since everyone in the industry expects consolidations, or is it just a touchy subject to mention? No, it's it's not a touchy sub subject, but I, I you know I, I get that uh, question every kind of uh, time I, I address the market uh, one way or another, whether if it's a quarterly presentation or or an investor <coughs> presentation, and it's um, you know consolidation. Yes, uh, we we should have that, but uh, consolidation is difficult. Um, you know, for us to grow as an owner and. We, I think investors need to know that, that we're, we're almost religious, not placing orders anymore. You know, it's, it's, we don't want to add to the burden in this market. Um, we, we, we have kind of our idea of uh, where, where the market will find this balance. And it's, uh, it's at least for the last seven, eight years, maybe more actually, 15 years, we haven't really placed any new orders in the market. Uh, so then... Our, you know, when we think of consolidation, it's more acquisition. You know, either acquisition ships that are already contracted, or acquisition company or acquire companies um, that own ships. Well, we we are acquiring ships that uh, are ordered by others, and and uh, we've done so the last year. We we, we acquired six uh, resales, as they call. We also acquired two VLCCs from from another owner um, that was, that were on the water. But when it comes to acquiring companies, you know, I think if if uh, when you ask um, the kind of consolidation question, you you, you should uh, think about the industry we're in. You know, how many owners are there, are or stock listed owners that are priced reasonably, you know, well below NAV and so forth, and and it would make sense for uh, Frontline, who normally trades above NAV, to to use our currency to acquire these companies or one of them at least. Um, it's it's really hard to to do um, this in the shipping market, and basically due to the fact that uh, you know most of these companies have dominant owners that actually want to be ship owners themselves, so they they, they don't really they're not really open for an acquisition. They might be open for a collaboration, but they're also fierce uh, kind of negotiators and, and have kind of ambitions on, on the value of their stock and so forth. So, so this is not like, you know, first of all, you don't have a vast array of stock listed entities that you can go after. Secondly, the ones you have that are of the quality where you, you, you might want to do something, uh, they have uh, kind of shareholder structures or uh, dominant owners that are not interested at all. So, so it's it's kind of easier said than done, uh, but uh, you know there there are certain ways uh, tanker uh, the tanker market can consolidate, and one of them is by by forming kind of greater commercial units uh, by way of uh, pools, for instance, and there there's a lot happening, and and uh, I think 
this is going to be an increasingly uh, kind of uh, theme for for the tank industry going forward and this has to do with the regulatory framework we're facing so you know we're a fairly big owner and, and we have the capabilities of uh, both coping with the planning the reporting the uh, you know, kind of uh, optimizing with regards to, to dealing with our emissions uh, going towards 2050 to follow the IMO and, and, uh, and uh, you know, kind of basically uh, uh, keep our, our investors uh, content from an ESG perspective and so forth. But there are many kind of marginal smaller owners that don't have these capabilities. And then it makes far more sense to join the pool that uh, where you come to, to a set table where, where basically everything is taken care of. You know, if you are, you know, to, to, to use a bad uh, kind of uh, um, analogy, if you're a Greek owner sitting on an island uh, somewhere, uh, sipping to your uh, drink, you don't really want to have 10 people uh, working on your ESG report. Um, so, so uh, but, but if you join a pool, you know, all this will be taken care of. So, so, but the, the challenge with some of the pools is that their motivation is not, or it doesn't seem like it's always uh, the uh, kind of return of the owner that's participating in the pool, because the pool is by nature transactional. The pool's income is generated from fishes. So, so they take a fixed fee per day for managing the ship, and then they take a percentage every time uh, the fixture is concluded. And uh, the percentage is obviously uh, then exposed to uh, the freight market. So, so the, the, the higher uh, the freight market, the better uh, kind of the, the, the shorter acts on behalf of the pool, um, your uh, income increases. A bit like the broker as well. The broker should actually be motivated to, to do the best deal possible for the owner. But what we've seen is that some of these pools become so large and uh, they don't really apply the commercial power uh, basically for utilization and for the tr transactional fee. So, so, so we've seen that although there are big pools in the market and they're probably going to grow, not all of them are probably best in class as to protecting the owner who's put his ship in their hands. Um, but anyway, it's uh, back to, to, uh, back to, um, uh, you know, building bigger units, yes, but again, uh, history has shown us that uh, the fragmentation in the tanker market is really difficult to get around, um, particularly not now, you know, where, where, you know, tanker assets should be really cheap because the market is so poor. There, there's actually a, normally a great correlation between spot markets and, and the value of an asset. Uh, that correlation is a bit off now, and it's I think it's more due to the fact that some of these fragment, you know, fragmenting owners or whatever it's called, they have assets in all the various asset classes. So they've actually been making a bundle either in LNG or containers or dry bulk, and they don't really care too much about their uh, dormant asset in the tanker industry that's just uh, paddling around the world, losing a little bit uh, here and there. So, so, so they're not really incentivized to, to, to do anything. So that, that's at least the, the, the feel we have in the market. So, but as I always say, you know, frontline, we, we, we are in a great financial position to, to, to move when we need to move or we want to move. 
but uh, and we're always looking, uh, but it's 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 tough. Just a couple of quick questions left, Larsa. I know we are heading running out of time, but you touched upon the reputation, and the reason why I just wanted to ask that question is because I guess reputation is built over time, right? So obviously, it's not a short answer to why Frontline has a great reputation, and also maybe investors value the stock a bit more compared to others. But maybe it's easier to just explain the sort of investor or investment philosophy that Frontline tries to give, right? Because you touched upon it earlier in our conversation that Frontline has a specific philosophy that should be tailored for the investors on their behalf, right? Uh, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, the shipping companies, uh, listed shipping companies have, um, you know, a, a kind of, they have a various degree of, of reputation or, you know, it's 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 not always um, you know to an outside investor, it's uh, it's not always transparent. Uh, the business model is not always transparent, and um, uh, you know it tends to be you know if you go on Wall Street and say you're representing a tanker owner, uh, you know the first question the investor will ask, well, well, where are you screwing me? Pardon my French, and and you know where are your hidden fees? So, so, so that's been a challenge to, to the tanker industry and, and kind of basically made uh, some investors hesitant to, 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 go, to go into the companies. The thing is that for all the companies where, you know, we share the same big shareholder, um, transparency is, is really important. And, and it's, it's basically, you know, I, I was thinking about that and, and uh, you know, this is something that's rarely communicated well, but if you look at, the common kind of red uh, thread, uh, which is probably a Norwegian expression, uh, uh, the common theme amongst the companies that uh, where, where we share the same kind of major shareholder is actually as, as follows. And this is from an old presentation uh, that, um, that uh, was given many, many years back. And it's, uh, it's basically, you know, it's, uh, it's, Keep it simple and focused. Lean and efficient management teams. Define where you are, where we are in this cycle. Consolidation and economy of scale works. Build credibility with customers, investors, and financiers. Think and like uh, and act like an investor. And this is all the management in the various companies' guidelines. So this is kind of. You know, this is the DNA of uh, Frontline, Golden Ocean, Flex LNG, Avance, SFL Corp. So, and the investors seem to appreciate that. So, you know, at Frontline, we're, we're blessed with uh, relatively high liquidity in our stock. Uh, we have a brand name on, on the street. Um, you know, when, when an investor... Uh, or a trader uh, in the equity markets uh, kind of uh, read in somewhere that, uh, you know, this is going to benefit the tanker market, he puts FRO into his Bloomberg terminal because they know about Frontline, right? Um, if you look at what's happened to, to one of my good kind of uh, colleagues, Oistan uh, Kallerklev on Flex, you know, look at the development in liquidity in that share over the last uh, kind of six, seven months. It's, it's just insane, you know. You know, from being... A U.S. listed company with very few shares traded. Now the volume in the U.S. is is larger than in Oslo at times. So it's or maybe even higher. I haven't looked uh, lately. 
Um, and it's, it's basically to build credibility with your investors. And I think it's also very important for a tanker owner, and this obviously goes for Frontline as well, is that when you have a dominant shareholder, he will from time to time um, move into a position to buy assets when the listed companies can't, basically due to their financial situation. I think this is a good example from Gold Notion. At some point then, this dominant shareholder, he does it not for purely for his own profit, he, he does it because he thinks that will benefit the listed vehicle uh, you know, down the line. So when you look at Gold Notion, which last year kind of bought out, uh, I believe it was 18 ships from, from uh, our main shareholders uh, kind of private uh, uh, company, it was done at a fair market price, very transparent uh, transaction. Uh, no hidden fees, no nothing. It was basically a fair market price, which even some analysts said it was on the cheap side. And you rarely see that in uh, the world of the listed tank owners. So, so, so this is kind of the key to 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 uh, to how we build credibility with investors. Um, you know, kind of the the efficiency and uh, low cost. Is is always um, you know a theme um, on on for frontline and and are, are kind of uh, the other companies in the sphere, uh, but not you know if you look at opex for instance you know uh, kind of we share the same technical uh, management platform, so so the the platform that manages the 75, 76 ships frontline owns. Um, also manages the ships that Gold Notion and Flex and Avance runs. And this gives through true synergies. Uh, so, so basically we have a huge um, knowledge base to pull on with a relatively small organization. The, the, the technical management itself per ship is outsourced. But you have what you call fleet managers that are in-house and they're overseeing the work that the technical managers are doing and also then benchmarking the work they're doing and it's not like we're going to save costs for any price but but you know by doing that uh we, we at least have a market to market on our cost because we have different technical managers running the ships uh, and they're overseen by the fleet managers so you'll find on opex that you know frontline is outperforming most of our peers by 10 to 20 percent so that's not where the big kind of savings is but if you look at on gna since we're a small management team we don't have a stock of you know kind of the amount of people running the fleet uh it would be surprised many how, how a few kind of heads we are actually so small focus management teams which gives really manageable gna costs and then by building credibility with investors, but also financiers, we do access favorable terms on finance. So, and that's where the biggest kind of hit comes, or the biggest boost comes to Vrompline, is our very low financial cost. You know, the, the, the fact that a ship owner can put place finance below uh, 200 basis points, for 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 long term financing of of a vessel, for tanker, non sustainable, uh, I might say, it is pretty incredible, and this gives us a huge advantage. And, and 
makes, you know, this is why Frontline has what we like to say the lowest cash break even levels kind of as far as we can understand in, in, in the, amongst our peers. And it also gives or puts Frontline in position to when the market turns very, very quickly return equity to our shareholders. And I think we'll, we'll, we'll you know, at the end, you know, kind of, we're coming to the end here. And I think this is probably one of the most important parts for Frontline and, and for investors in Frontline is that when you invest in Frontline, you're not only buying a stock kind of per se, you are that, but you're also investing together with our major shareholder. You're basically partaking in his bet. And he is just as interested as uh, the, the, the normal investor on return on equity, dividends, and you know. So, so basically you're, you're joining him in a trade. And uh, kind of when we get into position to, to pay out dividends, and you know, we paid out $6.2 billion in dividends uh, over the years. And we're going to continue to do so when we have the opportunity to do so. And um, um, it's uh, so. So you, 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 as an investor, you, you, you should feel safe that you're <laughs> you're joining an investment with probably one of the most scrutinizing investors, uh, you know, on the planet, as far as I can understand. And I or I know. Um, so, so, so that's kind of. And uh, the 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 other thing as well is that you. If you're interested in no volatility, a safe heaven, and you know a steady uh, kind of returning stock, um, low risk and so forth, and low beta, low volatility, whatnot, then you shouldn't really, your know, frontline should probably not be your core investment. Uh, but this is just by nature, you know, kind of the proposition we, what we offer investors is uh, more or less direct investment into an extremely cyclical industry being the tech market so so that's our proposition to the investor and we're going to pay you you know back for making that investment but of course you know since we're exposed to one of the most volatile markets in the world the investment will be volatile too but hopefully extremely rewarding and it has been in the past that's a perfect ending, Lars. It was so much fun having you on. So thank you so much for taking the time. Well, thank you for having me. If you liked this episode and the content we create, please make sure to check out our newsletter called The Bin Letter. More information is in the show notes. If you want to watch this episode as well, please head over to our YouTube channel and make sure to subscribe to the channel. This episode was produced by William Fransen.